Welcome to the You May Be Right Podcast, part of Elite Sports Radio, the place where New York Yankees and Boston Red Sox fans can't stand one another. Or maybe they can. Josh Benjamin, and sitting across from me is the Wally Pip to my Lou Gehrig, Paul DeSeno. What's up, Paul? Nothing much. Uh, just having a good holiday season with the family, yeah. and uh, trying to keep uh, trying to keep a track of all this or the lack thereof of hot stove action. Yeah, uh, you. Uh, this uh, Christmas was a little different for you this year because uh, you and your lovely wife have a uh, baby Teddy right now. We do. He's two months old. We brought him up to the parents for Thanksgiving, my side of the family. Uh, not Thanksgiving for Christmas, my side of the family. Uh, all the way up to Connecticut. He did well on the commute, uh, on the train ride up, and uh, he did well on the train ride back, and that's really all we could ask. I always uh, never really understood why everyone goes goes all in with babies on Christmas because they don't appreciate we're getting informed. Like, hey, look, it's it's a Red Sox onesie. I know, right? Like, he's like, oh, you know, that's that's not my size. He can't say, you know, that's uh, I'm not going to fit into that. In I'm two allergic months. to the material. Absolutely. I mean, like, look, all the claw, all the clothes that we got him or that were bought for him, he's probably going to be out of. You know, I give it a month. Month yeah, and a half, yeah, and that's being generous. But you know what? He's going to look good, and I can't thank my family and friends enough for getting us all the, you know, all the. It's just like a tide of clothes. You're just buried under baby clothes, and they're also adorable. <laughs> they're also they're also adorable. You want to buried under baby clothes, and they're also adorable. They're also they're also adorable. You want to put them in all of them all the time, and he helps you out by peeing on everything, and that's <laughs> and that's what's important. And Paul. Um, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this if you don't want to. But, ladies and gentlemen, Paul actually does a very good impression of his son crying. That he did. He did at the party that one time. The whole like ah, like right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So he'll get up, and we call him the baby dragon because he just gets up, <laughs> and he just it's not. <laughs> it's like ah. So it's more. It's 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 something like that, and it and it could wake the dead. And it sure as heck wakes us up at so, three in so the morning. You're say, so you're saying your wife is Daenerys Targaryen, essentially. My wife is the mother of dragons. There you go. She's Daenerys Targaryen. And that that is life goals right there. You know, you, it's. I mean, she can she could kind of quit now. She's she could kind of quit while she's ahead and, and just go. coast on this for the next twenty years. That's absolutely right. So <laughs> you so you had your your new your I guess newborn son go to your family's house for Christmas. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah, I I moved apartments Christmas week. So oh that, my god. Yeah. So, how were the movers? The movers were fine. Like, cause, cause we used flat rate, and you know they're they're great for if you live in New York. Tell me you tipped them. Oh yeah, it turns out we over tipped them. Oh good. Yeah. Good. Well then they got a Christmas gift. Yes they did. There you go. Yes they did. But also let's go shift back to baseball because we could go on and on <laughs> about Christmas on our respective families. All in all. Oh, quick note: instead of recording at Rivington Studios with some Sex Pistols wannabes, or at my now old apartment, we are at an actual podcast studio today. 
coming to you live from Cast Sound Labs in Ridgewood, Queens. It's looking great. We got we got wood paneling on the walls. We got you know we got a I think it's a hardwood table. Uh, we got gr- yeah, that sounds like hardwood. Phenomenal microphones, and we actually have a we have an engineer in the booth. It's it's amazing. And, and we're both wearing headsets. Yes, it's, this, this is the adulting of podcasting. We we made the show, Josh. Yeah, we did. We made the show. That was a high five across the table. Nice. <laughs> Anyway, so onto the hot stove. Paul, the biggest question on everyone's lips. We got Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. Where are they going to go? Manny Machado recently did his free agency tour, met with the Chicago White Sox, Philadelphia Phillies, and New York Yankees. Um, before we get into mine, because, you know, I'm the Yankees fan, I could wax poetic about any move they make going forward. Um, what do uh, what do you think is going on? Well, I mean, on the Red Sox side, it's uh, the answer is nothing much. Let's get ready and wait for maybe we get a reliever signed. You know, there's there's a lot of reports out there that they're still in the mix for David Robertson. Um, there might be other relievers still in play. Kimbrell might still be in play. Yeah, because you do have a big hole in the bullpen because Joe Kelly departed for the Los Angeles Dodgers right. that you just beat in the World Series. At about $10 million a year. I don't yep. think they were going to give him that. I think it was – I believe it was three years. Three years, $25 million. Three years, $25 million. yeah. So there, there, I don't think there was any, any way that the Red Sox went over two years for Joe Kelly. Of course, he departs. Uh, you know, he gets his payday, and I'm happy for him because he's – you know he did he did amazing things not only down the stretch but in the playoffs he was great uh, so happy for that but yeah as far as the Red Sox go I think we're I think we're still in a holding pattern as far as relievers go I think Dombrowski's trying to wait out the market I actually think most teams are trying to wait out the market right now I think we're going to see a bunch of signings in January and a flurry of signings in February to 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 go. To you know, to fit the trend of past years. Yeah, because I feel that Harper and Machado, th- those two especially, they're, it's almost like they're playing free agency chicken, right? Or, or it's like a free agency staring contest, right? I think they're it's, in. It's a, like I, you sign first. No, you sign first. Right. But I don't want to sign first. Right, and then they're both in a staring contest with the you know, with you know with the with the with the respective teams that are that are showing some interest with them. I mean, there's there's rumors out there that a couple of teams are interested in long term deals, and there's rumors out there that some of their maybe preferred destinations are. Only interested in shorter term deals what do you make of this uh it, it's really hard to say because free agency has changed so much since the analytics era dawned just a few years ago right because because i remember i was in i think i was just starting high school maybe i was in ninth or tenth grade when a-rod signed the first big deal with the rangers yeah and back then it was it was a big deal because you say oh he's looking for a 10-year contract he wants a private jet yeah he wants an office at the stadium he wants like a, a private wing of suites for his family it's it was almost unheard of that all of a sudden oh the Texas Rangers are going to give him two hundred fifty two million dollars over ten years then he opts out of that deal following a trade to, like not long after a trade to the Yankees gets another ten year contract worth two hundred seventy five million and then then we we're seeing how ten year contracts are burning people right and and did you think and Robinson Cano just what happened there and if you and if you and if you looked at these ten year deals these huge long deals did you did you actually believe because I remember not believing it did you actually believe that the Texas Rangers were going to compete with a Rod or was it apparent was it it was apparent to me and I think to a lot of observers that it that he was. It was kind of a that ten year contract becomes a millstone hanging around that team's neck. It becomes burdensome, especially for a smaller at the time market team like the Texas Rangers, compared to the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. That's a really good question because I'm gonna be a hundred percent honest. Like as much as I love baseball, I am an avid avid baseball fan. I 
I looked at this deal and I wasn't really thinking about the long game. I right. just saw, oh wow, like the Texas Rangers are going to pay him money and A Rod's good. Let's see what happens. Sure. I, I wasn't taking into account: do they have the pitching to keep up? Do they have the the lineup balance to keep up? And the answer was they didn't. Because what was it? Three last place finishes all three years he was with the team. I think so. And there I, you go. And 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 but there was never a doubt either that A-Rod was going to get his numbers because he was that good. Well, yeah, but also the fact that ballpark in Arlington, like, I mean, <laughs> you and I could probably hit a home run there. Uh, you know, I'm not going I'm, I'm to say that that's true. Um, I'm not sure that I could jack the ball out of any ballpark unless I'm unless I'm, I'm dealing with an aluminum bat and a tennis ball. I remember, though, this was back in the 90s. You might remember this, too. Because um, my, uh, my father and stepmother used to vacation in Maine regularly because her family had a house up there. And one of the only channels we got up there was Nesson. And I remember there was some sort of promotion. Hey, show up to the game early hit and hit one over the green monster and win prizes or something like that. And I guess that because I remember at some point that promotion stopped because maybe too many kids are hitting home <laughs> runs over the monster. Yeah, I mean the monster is it's it's I think it's three ten down the line to yeah. left and two ninety nine down to the pesky pole. <laughs> it's yeah. not exactly the uh, you know it's well well th- this was specifically you had to hit the ball over the monster. It's I mean it's not exactly the largest ballpark in the you know in the major leagues. Uh, but you know look I'm gonna defend Fenway Park for a second there those power alleys. You know those power alleys are shots. You really got to hit it. Oh yeah, you, you know, if, if if one drops into the triangle in center field, game it's four twenty to deep center. Yep. You know, in that in that in that in in that wall juts out pretty quickly outward once you you know once you leave the pesky pole. It's you know you you really got to hit that ball right. to get it out in right field. And in October, you know some balls that might be bombs out of there in June and July. You know, those are warning track fly balls. So I'm gonna de- I'm gonna defend Fenway Park for a second here, but I'm gonna say that there's no band box like the Yankee Stadium band box. Oh, the short porch and right and, field. And admit, admit it. How many how many home runs did did, did you think Giancarlo Stanton was gonna hit this year? Did you think he was just gonna get 50 easy or? No, because because anytime you see someone have that gargantuan a year, sure. Your first thought is is the pace sustainable? And it was and Stan, you know, he's got. He was healthy the last two years, but he's got a rep relying on the DL. I thought he was going to get closer to 40 home runs than he was 50. Right. And he got, like, 30-something. You know, he so, had a good year. Yeah. But he's so strong. I mean, even on bad – I've seen him hit – I saw him hit, uh, you know, bad ball home runs. Yeah. And bad ball doubles in that stadium. And that's and that's something some guy – that's something a guy with Giancarlo Stan's uh, strength can do in I've that seen park. Stan – I saw Stan, <laughs> both with the Marlins and the Yankees, hit some balls that – because when I was playing high school ball, these were the kind of pitches that if you swung at it, no matter what the result, the coach would bench you. Look, he can miss the ball and yeah. still hit it out of Yankee Stadium. That's how strong that guy is. Yeah, but going back to what you said about um, – <clears throat> excuse me, the about free agency long-term contracts, in the age of analytics, we're going to start seeing – a lot less of those. I think so. Um, we're going to see, and from the players, and we're going to be seeing a lot more opt-out clauses. I think so. <clears throat> and I know you, you put together some crazy numbers that I, I was going to print them today, but then I realized it was 58 pages long. No, so if you look at the free agent contracts, and thanks, but if you look at the free agent contracts from 2012 I did 2018 because 2019 is not through yet, so yeah. we have insufficient data for 2019. But the numbers are pretty striking in terms of, you know, when do the deals get signed? Um, how many years? What's the average number of years on these deals? Right. And, and 
and how many nine-figure contracts get handed out in the age of free agents on multi-year deals. I thought I'd see more movement there, but I didn't. But in 2012, if you look at the uh, if you look at when the deals when free agents deals were signed. Yeah. If you look at before November, November, and December, you see the vast majority of deals signed from signed signed between November and January. If you go all the way to 2018, you have a much more even uh, much more even split. November, December, January, February, March. These guys can sign at any time, and I think that's part of what you were talking about is the, this game of chicken. Yeah, where players and their agents and where teams are more willing to wait it out and see if somebody comes to them rather than aggressively pursuing the other, right? Because in 2012, 2013, and 2014, you're talking about 34%, you know, close to 50% of the deals signed in November and December. And yeah, I mean, just looking at 2012 right now, right. I mean, if, if you're looking at just three, I mean, 2012 especially, the long-term deals that really jump out at you. Yeah. yeah. Are um, C.J. Wilson and Pujols to mm-hmm. the uh, to the Angels? I, I remember um, when Pujols signed. I was just getting off the train, like at like ten o'clock in the morning. Um, I, I can't remember where, where it was going, but I'd say, "Oh, ten years, two hundred forty million dollars." And I went, um, "Okay." I mean, the DH rule is going to help him, but a ten-year deal is a ten-year deal. Yeah, I I'm a Yankees fan. We're we're we were just seeing right then and there just how much the A-Rod deal was burning us. Look, I, I, I looked at that Pujols deal at the time and said, oh, man, I wish that, I wish that the Red Sox had gotten him, even right. though we were full up. Yeah. You know, even though he, he probably wasn't a good fit for us at that time. Sure. You know, I thought the Angels were lucky because Pujols was pretty all-world up to that point. But I think even the Angels are seeing now that, you know, in the latter half of a, of a contract for 10 years – you know, it's not always the, it's not always what you signed up for, and this is where the the uh, conversation about Bryce Harper and Manny Machado gets interesting, because Bryce Harper has made it very clear he there was talk of like a thirteen year four hundred million dollar deal that he wants or just other outrageous demands. Now the Nationals they've said we've made our our best and final offer. Yep, and the Dodgers they made some headlines earlier uh, I think it was last week where they traded Yasiel Puig, Matt Kemp. And pitcher Alex Wood, I believe it was, to the Cincinnati Reds for Homer Bailey, who they're planning on buying out. They got some minor leaguers too, but like all the big names in there, the Dodgers didn't really get any. Which to me, you're you're shedding tens of millions of dollars in payroll. Por qué? You know why are you I mean, why are you doing this? Harper's from Las Vegas. Like the Dodgers at that Dodgers saying it's only like a few hours drive away, so it's it's close to home. Which, if I was a free agent, I would certainly take that into consideration. I mean, the rumor mill says that that Bryce Harper wants to sign with the Yankees. Yeah. Or that he prefers the Yankees. Yeah. um, Now, which brings us to the next point, because Joel Sherman of the New York Post tweeted out yesterday that that both Harper and Machado do not want to play for the Philadelphia Phillies and would prefer to 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 each sign with the Yankees. Now, with Machado, let's provide some context. um, Christmas week, he met with the Chicago White Sox. Mm Mm-hmm. He, um, oh, who sorry, are also in who, well, the week before Christmas, yeah. And the White Sox are also in the Bryce Harper sweepstakes. Yes, because they've got money to spend. They've got a lot of great young talent coming up with the minors, like um, like Michael Kopech, who the, um, who the Red Sox sent over in the Chris Sale trade. He's out for all of next year with Tommy John. And they want to make an impact. Yeah, but the kid can play. Their attendance apparently dipped below 20,000 
for the first time in a number of years per game in 2018. This is the White Sox? Yeah, so I think they want to they wanna make a splash for their fans. They know they have to compete with their north side brethren and the, well, the, the Cubs. Playing and, on the south side, like, where it's not the best neighborhood doesn't help them, even even there, even though there is pretty much a fenced walkway to their stadium from the, from the, uh, from the train. I mean, that's true, but I still think they want to make an impact for their fans. Oh, yeah, 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 that, that's, that, that's totally, totally a thing. Uh, they definitely want to do that. The question is, do Harper and Machado want to? Right, and and, the, and how much, and really, how much money are they going to they going to be able to wheel up to you know wheel up to these guys' houses and dump in their driveway? I mean, if if the White Sox land one or both of these guys, more power to them. Because if because if you can convince the two biggest names on the free agent market, let alone one of them. Hey, come lose for a couple of years, right? And maybe, and, and then, and then maybe have a shot at the playoffs. Yeah, but you'll be making a uh, a lot of money doing it. And may, look, maybe that's a, that's an unfair read of the White Sox chances in the coming years. Maybe they've got a lot, a ton of a ton more moves planned, and maybe. But right now, that's what that's what it looks like they're in for. And if they la- imagine if the White Sox landed both of them, I mean, aren't you talking about seventy five million a year just committed that you can't move? For the next ten years, yeah, because like whichever team signs Harper, Machado, whoever, they need to realize if you're going to be paying him all this money, you need to you need, you're actually going to be paying him all of this money, and you need to be prepared to continue paying them right. that money if they are on another team at any point, right? Well, and, you know, and it's not it's not monopoly money, right? And you know, it's going to stay on your payroll, and it's going to reduce drastically if you landed both. Yeah, one is a little more doable, especially in this day and age. You know, with the luxury tax threshold being quite as high as it is. Yeah. Um, but I think with two, you're talking. That's a that's a that's a serious commitment. That's a serious financial commitment for any team. And we've seen in the past teams struggle under one albatross ten year contract. Right. Can any team carry two? Maybe the Dodgers. Maybe the Yankees. Maybe the Red Sox. But who, I mean, who else? I mean, well, well, let's go back to Machado though, because he met with the White Sox and they say, oh, he took a meeting with the White Sox. Nothing really came of it. The Yankees, this is where things get interesting. The Yankees, um, their initial meeting with him at the stadium, where they, they put his him on the Jumbotron, superimposed pinstripes on him, that meeting lasted an hour and a half, and people thought, oh, like, it's only an hour and a half, what's going on? But then they, but then the Yankees took Machado and his wife out to dinner that night. Do you night. think they talked about his hustle the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think they do you think they I'm get, sure well Hal Steinbrenner said that if uh, he wants to be a Yankee he has to uh, explain those comments now we're of course talking about an interview that Machado did with Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic where he said oh like Johnny Hustle that's not my cup of tea and it made headlines but people don't realize he said afterwards I have to be better about that right I didn't realize that yeah actually you know and that's and that's an important piece of that interview or of that, yeah, that's an important piece of that quote that gives much needed context to that comment. Now, still, I think it frightens me if I'm his manager well, that, I, that I got a guy who's not who's, who says, you know what, I'm not really Johnny Hustle. That's not my cup of tea. Number one, that that's an instinct that he has. Number one, and number two, that he has a reputation of being a dirty player because that, you know, that attract that's a lightning rod for your team. Well, this is where things get interesting because he apparently then the next day, so he met with the Yankees on a Tuesday. This would have been on been Wednesday. He met with the Philadelphia Phillies for four hours, and nothing really came from that. Did they go to dinner? Uh, if they did, we did not hear about it. <laughs> but they also 
but they also have a lot of money to burn. I mean, our, our good friend Sam Lopresti, who is uh, the resident Phillies fan of our friend group, he has said that the Yan- that the Phillies could offer Manny Machado or Bryce Harper $350 million as soon as they could sneeze. I mean, for or the as easily as they could sneeze. I rather. mean, and so, and this is, this is interesting. We're hearing about the Phillies being deeply invested and motivated. Yes. Motivated to get, to right. get one, at least one of these guys. We're hearing about the White Sox being, you know, pretty heavily motivated to get one or both of these guys. And the Yankees being relatively motivated to get, you know, Machado and or Harper or, I mean, I, I, I don't see how they could possibly do both. But the point is we're, we have, there's three really motivated teams and yet there's no movement. Right. I mean, I mean the White Sox are definitely the dark horse. Because, and, and also it's important to note, after, not long after Machado took his meeting with the Phillies, um, he advised his agent, I'm not making a decision until after the new year. I mean, fair enough. Yeah, because it, it's the holidays come up. Like I, you got family over. It's a lot of it's a lot of things you already have to do, and picking where your future is going to be is another thing to worry about. Take a few days off. No, but there's no even publicized gamesmanship in terms of an offer made. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yes. Like there, there's no there's there's really it's it's the been o- pretty mum. The only information we have Ray offers made is that early on in the process, the Yankees said they will not offer Manny Machado three hundred million dollars. What what do you think? Do you think that they have a number of years in mind, the Yankees? And if they do, what number of years do they have in mind? Um, well, putting myself in Cashman's shoes. Or do you think they have, what I really mean is, do you think they have a, you know, a, a line they won't cross for, for Manny Machado? Well, this, this is a very interesting question because I have thought all along the Yankees have not wanted anything to do with Manny Machado. I thought they just wanted to drive up his price so that another team would overpay him. Kind of like what they did with Robinson Cano and the Mariners. Sure. Because uh, Cano, his last year with the Yankees was two, was 2013, had a good year, but Cashman wanted to trade him. And the Steinbrenner said no. And Cashman was saying, guys, this he's going to want a 10-year contract. We can't offer him that. I'd rather try and trade him now. Well, so not that- can't, won't. It's right. different with the Yankees. Right. It's never can't. It's usually won't. Well, in this case, it was still can't because they were still paying to share in A-Rod. I mean, look. I don't think it matters how much. And the Yan- I don't think it matters how much the Yankees are paying anybody. The Yankees, uh, as a franchise, I believe the number they paid north of three hundred million dollars in luxury taxes. They're worth, I think, in the realm of four to five billion dollars as a franchise. I, strange as it may seem, the Yankees could probably field a payroll. A pay, well, <clears throat> excuse me. Could probably field for at least one season a payroll north of $260, $270 million. They could. Will they, I think, is a different thing. I don't think they will. I don't think they ever will. The way the game has evolved, I mean, free agency, it's it's an added perk, but you can't, like, you can't spend you can't spend yourself to a title. So fair enough. So they with you know, two thousand nine being the exception. So they drive up Cano's price and he signs with Seattle for for the ten yeah, years. Cause, yeah, because the Yankees were only, were only willing to offer him seven years. They were offering him the same amount of money per year that he got from Seattle, but right. but Cano wanted ten years. Ten years is a long time. Right. And now look. And now fast forward to today. Cano, he's got a PED suspension on his resume. He's got some other injuries, and now and the the Mariners and then yet another teardown of the franchise. They traded him to the New York Mets and covered some of the money. Right. I mean, I, I think they recognize that they're not competing now uh, and they need to make se- some serious changes if they're ever going to compete. I think shedding salary is 
part of those changes. They need room. You need room to rebuild. Yeah. Um, and well, well, the, well, the Mariners also they their first priority right now has to be restocking their minor league system. Absolutely. I mean, they're, it's rated I think as one of the worst in the majors, if not the worst. Yeah, because uh, they, they traded. They had a great young outfielder, Tyler O'Neill, who they traded to the Cardinals for Mike Leake, and Mike Leake, he's. Okay, he's he's a finesse pitcher. He doesn't rely that much on velocity, and he can get guys out, but he's not worth that kind of prospect. What, what especially I'll, when you're taking on multiple years of a contract? Explain to me if you can though the Encarnacion deal, because it seemed at once that they're trying to shed payroll, and then they take on twenty million. I know he's he can vest for next year at five, and that's a heck of a deal for everything that, for that I've heard about the Mariners taking on Edwin Encarnacion is that they are actively trying to move the deal like they did Carlos Santana. I see. Okay. Um, but in terms of the Yankees and Machado, if I'm Brian Cashman, going back to your original question, um, I guess it all depends on how badly do you actually want him because the Yankees already have a very right-handed lineup. Um, if Machado were, Now, if Machado were a switch hitter or a left-handed bat, I'd throw all the money at him. Sure. But... You're looking at him right now. He's going to be a stopgap shortstop while Didi Gregorius recovers from Tommy John. And then he's going to third. Yeah, and there you have Miguel Andujar, who, while not a great defensive third baseman, can hit. He can tear the seams off the ball. Well, if Manny Machado comes, aren't they going to trade Andujar and try to flip him for an arm? Uh, that's what I've heard, and I and I've I said the moment the Yankees were eliminated from the offseason and everyone's talking about Manny Machado, and I said, if you want to get Machado, great. Don't do it unless you know you can get a top arm for um, – for Miguel and Duhar, and finding buyers could prove tough because right now apparently talks for Sonny Gray have come to a standstill. <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised. I think, but I think for all that they, you know, for all that they have invested in him to date, I think I thought Cashman's price would remain high, and I think merely having have Sonny Gray having had one down year in that largely Yankee Stadium alone. I didn't think that that would hurt his value all that much. Well, it Gray it also, appears to have hurt he, his value. Well, he also changed his pitching approach entirely right. in 2018 because the Yankees are because the Yankees have all been about throwing more breaking balls and less fastballs. Um, he cut his fastball use almost in half this year, and then started throwing a cutter, which he had never really done before. And then throw and then you throw in um, oh. Uh, he can't throw in Yankee Stadium uh, with the with the road and home numbers. There's such a disparity between the two. But given even given all the changes to his to his approach, I think the thing that you can take away from if you're looking for silver linings in Sonny Gray's year last year is that he pitched okay away from Yankee Stadium. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember one like, game. Well. I remember one game in particular against the Royals at, at Kauffman Stadium. He threw I think seven perfect innings. Something like that. I mean, that's that's not bad, and and it's and it's certainly not the mark of some guy who's all washed up. And I don't think Sonny Gray is. He's, he is not all washed up. He just needs to get out of New York. And I'm worried Cashman might have shown his hand too much. So now that teams know he's trying to unload Sonny Gray, yeah, they're maybe, in a position they can lowball the Yankees. Right? Maybe maybe uh, stating that Sonny Gray, maybe stating definitively that Sonny Gray will not be a Yankee in 2019 was was over was, was overplaying well, things right a little now. Bit. So, well, Cashman kind of painted himself into a corner because now regarding Gray teams are beating him at his own game right. because he's the master of saying you're not in a position to make demands like why should I like, you're trying to dump salary why should I give up like, like sell the farm just to just to get this one guy from you when you're when these guys aren't even going to make an impact for your team yeah like yeah. They'll, maybe they'll sell tickets but they're not they're not the end-all be-all of you uh, making a wild card berth so Manny Machado May or may not come to the Yankees. Right. And he, oh, the danger question. If if I'm going to give him any money, I'll give him let's say eight years. Um, you give him eight. 
Yeah, I'll give him I'll give him an eight year deal. Um, hold on, let me do some math real quick. I'll give him eight years, two hundred forty million. Now, how old is he now? Um, Machado and Harper are both twenty six. Twenty six years old. So at the end of eight years, he's going to be thirty four. Yeah, and. And we're not in the steroid era anymore. You know, we're really we're, not. We're not going to see. I don't think we're going to see in too many players that uptick that we saw in the late '90s. Of, <laughs> you know, guys finding that second life after 35. Yeah. Life doesn't begin after 35 in baseball anymore. You yeah, know? I mean, so, unless you're like a pitcher and you realize, okay, now I got to learn how to throw more breaking pitches, sure. more off speed. You you change but, your but approach. From, you but from a, a hitting fan. standpoint, it's a lot different. I, I mean, I, I think I think the projection becomes a little bit more typical to what it used to be before the you know the the mid to late '90s and early 2000s. Hands down, you know. So, I mean, eight years he's going to be 34. Do you think he's going to be the same player at 34 than he is at 26? No. But do you? My question really is: Do you think he's going to be worth the money at 34 as he is at 26? Uh, it's hard to say because I mean, because one because one thing that if I were Cashman I would do I would offer him an opt out after let's say three years offer him an opt out so yes. he can opt out and go somewhere else or offer you an opt out he I would offer him an opt out so that if he feels he can get more money on the open market he can opt out after three years he's and more then, than welcome yes. to try it yeah right because um, just like the Red Sox have with JD Martinez after uh, after this coming season and they had with David Price who just opted in yeah and um, the way it's looking. I could see if J.D. Martinez has another monster season. He had a monster season this year. I, I was shocked at the at the MVP voting only because he wasn't really in the mix at the end. Yeah. Given the year that he had, I would have expected him in that mix. Yeah. Um, but that said, if he has another monster year like he did in 2018, I could actually see J.D. Martinez trying the open market. And if, trying to, if he matches his production from 2018, right. he will opt out. And trying to land that six seven year deal you know uh, trying to land you know close to closer to Machado Harper money he's a Scott Boris guy so yeah he clearly will so well so Manny Machado I would give him personally were I the Yankees yep I would give him if I was just giving him a contract if I was just laying out a contract I'd do six years and I and I would meet I would meet the yearly asking price at the, that, the thirty million a year, I would meet the yearly asking price at thirty million a year if I really was trying to sign him. Yeah, and I think, and I think that might that might get the job done for Manny Machado, who I don't think it would get the job done, get job done for is is Bryce Harper. Yeah, because because I, I was having a conversation with some baseball buddies on my way over here, and we all agree that Harper is taking a harder line on the money, right, and that. The, and that the way it's looking, maybe he'll have to resign with the Nationals if he if he wants to get get um, if he money. wants to get those ten years. Yeah, um, I, th- I think they only offered him seven. Or maybe, did they offer him ten? I have, I have to look. I, I thought they offered him ten at three hundred million. We got to look this up. Yeah, um, but and Harper, he wants to be a Yankee. I mean, you theoretically could do that, but that also means making Brett Gardner a fourth outfielder. Well, he and he's not getting his 10 years. Yeah, he will out of the Yankees. So he, not. he's going to have to sign a shorter contract with the yeah. Yankees. I mean, look, it's interesting if I were, from a negotiation standpoint, it would be interesting to say, "Look, you can come here for 3 or 4 years and then opt out if you want to." Yeah. You know, but we're not going to we're not going to give you, you know, line up necessarily all that guaranteed money for as many years as you want. That said, LA did just just did clear out all that payroll. Yeah, and, and the Cubs might be trying that too. I mean, I think Bryce Harper fits in L.A. 
you know, he's a Showtime guy. Yeah. He's I mean, a Hollywood guy. He's he's he, the Hollywood Hulk Hogan of uh, of the free agency market. He's he's from nearby Las Vegas, relatively speaking. Yeah. I think he's I think he fits perfectly as a as a Dodgers centerpiece. I think he'd hit well in that park. I think I think he'd do, I think he'd be fine there. The question is, will he go? That LA is not on the list of his preferred defi- his preferred destinations surprises me given the size of the LA market. Right. And also just because he he could go to that team right now and be the guy. Right. Whereas if he goes to the Yankees, he's sharing the spotlight with Judge Stanton. He's just a member of the team. Yeah, he's yeah, he's just kind of there. He goes to the Cubs, there's Chris Bryant, there's Javi Baez, who I think finished second in National League MVP voting. There's Anthony Rizzo, former Red Sox prospect Anthony Rizzo. Right. And then it's just you always think that free agency, once it hits, is going to be so open and shut. But now, like with this, we were talking about the late signings right now in the analytics era. This is proof that I don't care how big a guy you are, like we're holding the line. And if that, if you can't handle that, there's go find another team that's going to give it to you. Right. And I think, but I think the player, even the players, are getting more comfortable with the longer signing period. If you look at 2013, the average number of years on contracts in November and December, it's it's over one year. So there's multi-year deals getting signed in November and December in 2013. Yep. January through April, or January and beyond, it's only one-year deals. So it's kind of, I think there's kind of a, a feeling that, well, if we go beyond December, the best we're going to do is a one-year deal. I don't think that's true anymore. And, and, and the numbers in 2018 actually really do bear that out. The only time where you're not getting multi-year deals in 2018 is after spring training, which yeah. makes a lot of sense. But yeah. it also makes the free agency period more exciting in a way, less exciting in a way. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember just covering the offseason last year. It's like it's short of a daily room around if I was a sitting duck. Like, if there were no changes in negotiations, like, what the hell was I going to do? Yeah, I mean, what are you going to write about? Trade rumors? How many yeah. How many trade rumors columns can you put? To, can one man put together, Josh, I ask you? Without without starting to repeat yourself, not many. I mean, but the numbers in 2018 are pretty are pretty crazy. Only about 35% of the, of the free agents signed in November and December. In January, February, March, it's about 20% from there on out. Yeah. You know, every every month. So the... the the uh, what do you call it? The, the the free agency period has become much longer, I think, than it used to be. Yeah. That said, do you want a deadline? Like a deadline for a deadline for contracts. A, f- a free agency deadline. I wouldn't be opposed to it, just because I, I remember. I think it was. I don't think Jake Arrieta signed with the Phillies until until close to February last year, and when I was on my honeymoon, and I just remember thinking, okay, well now like he's. Pitchers and catchers have already reported, or are about to report. Right. How, what's his condition going to be? And like he, that. Right. That's has like, he, has he been working lot, out? It's not. It's not a lot of time to get acclimated. <laughs> I mean, I assume. I look. They're all professionals, and I assume these ball players. You know, it, it, especially if they, you know, they Arietta knows he's going to land somewhere. Yeah. You man. know, and they keep they, you know, they keep in shape. But but your your point is well taken. Is is what what's even his mental state if he doesn't know where he's going by mid February? That, that's true. It's it's a roller coaster, but hopefully a lot of these guys have the stomach for it. I mean, I think they do. Are they better? Are their agents better? Yeah. <laughs> because that's what we're looking at. I mean, the agents should. This is what they were trained to do. They've been preparing for this their whole lives through you know college, probably law and business school. That's what the, I mean. Look, the 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 
the teams want to sign them for less years for less money. If you're running a business, that's what you would want to do. Yes. And the players want more years and more money. And what what seems like it's happening is that, you know, there is that they the the teams are getting are getting fewer years, but right. the players are winning in that you could sign a multi year deal at any time. You yeah. know, it could be it could be March fifteenth, and you can get your three years. So holdouts for certain players, hold out holding out might be beneficial for certain players. It might not. You never yeah. know. Yeah. And and one thing we haven't we haven't really heard much of this uh, this off season uh, this guy this guy the Jap the Japanese league posted Yusei Kikuchi mm-hmm. who's a lefty pitcher like I wrote an article for ESNY about why they should pursue him this is before you know before Jay Happ was was an option or uh, re-upped with us but he's been posted and I have no idea what's been going on with the bids and what was the what was the fee to enter negotiations well, with the, Mr. Kikuchi the way the the way the posting system works right now is that now. Well, let's use Daisuke Matsuzaka as the example. Sure. When he when he was sadly. Yeah. Uh, so the way the posting system worked back then is that a team like that's the, unfair. He wasn't terrible. But, the you know. Japanese leagues, his his team in a Nippon professional baseball would say, "Hey, we're posting so and so. Everyone submit your bids." So teams would say, "Hey, we're willing to pay X amount of money to um, to negotiate with them." So uh, the Red Sox they paid fifty million dollars just to talk to just him. to just to chat. Yeah. At which point they then had a 30-day window to negotiate a long-term deal with him, which they did. So all in all, even though his deal was only worth about $52.5 million, they paid it over 100 half of which was just to talk to him. Right. And then I think this was when Darvish was posted. The, the system had changed. Oh, no, this was when um, Masahiro Tanaka was posted. Um, the system had changed then so that um, the posting fee was capped at $20 million. So this, So this uh, didn't price a lot of teams out. So then, in essentially setting a twenty million dollar price, yes. regardless, just yes. to so, talk to him. So multiple teams could submit bids to twenty million. Then all of a sudden, it opens up the market a little more, and he just and the player just picks the deal that he likes best. Now, instead of a posting fee, the Japanese team gets a percentage of the contract. Okay, so they just they just go talk to them and they, they, sign them if they can. Yeah, it's it's like paying commission, right? Is what it is, right? So uh, I don't know what's going to happen with him. Uh, I haven't heard any news about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, like, because uh, last I checked, we got something from Kyoto News right now. Yusei Kikuchi, well prepared for move to MLB. And you could maybe you could bring him aboard, because I, I think um, all the scouts grade him as, I think, around a four, a four starter. You know what? Just cut Sonny Gray loose and then just bring bring Kikuchi <laughs> aboard as, as a long man, I guess, or a spot starter. I mean, look, you had good luck with Masahiro Tanaka. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, I mean, he hasn't been during the regular season. He hasn't been, you know, the twenty, you know, the 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 eighteen twenty game winner. Maybe some some pundits thought the Yankees were getting. Yeah. But when it mattered, Tanaka has stepped up. Yeah, and, I mean, and done and done a fantastic job in big games. Tanaka has been really tough, and that's and and that's almost for a team like the Yankees that expects to be in the playoffs each and every year and be competing for a World Series. You know, more often than not, having a guy that comes up big in big situations like that is, I think, I think almost as important to them as having, you know, somebody who could put together a decent regular season campaign. Yeah. And uh, we could go on and on about Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, and the like, but let's, uh, for the second hour of the show, folks, let's uh, shift to players of baseball past. The Hall of Fame vote is coming up. The class will be announced, I believe it's January 22nd. Now, He's going to get in. Sure. Mariano Rivera is going to be a Hall of Famer this year. 
But uh, should be unanimous. It should be unanimous. But um, one guy, it, Bill Ballou from the Worcester Telegram Gazette, is saying he's feeling a little salty. Um, now, Paul, for context, why don't you uh, explain uh, the city of Worcester, Massachusetts, to us? Look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and insult the city of Worcester. Okay. But the fact of the matter is, nobody's asking you to. But the fact of the matter is, it is a smallish town. Yep. In eastern Massachusetts, um, it's I liken it to a larger Springfield, you know, on the east part, of, in, you know, on the east side of Massachusetts, right? Yeah, we talked about that before we got in the studio. It's a mill town, um, or an old mill town. It's a blue collar town. Um, you couple know, colleges here and couple there. Couple colleges here and there. The College of the Holy Cross is there. Clark University and as well. And College of the Holy Cross is well fenced in. You know, the Worcester has Worcester definitely has its own reputation, but it also has a paper called the Telegram Gazette, and for, for which Mr. Ballou happens to have covered the Red Sox since 1987. I mean, his name's Ballou. I mean, he's a great guy. Yeah, I don't know him personally. I mean, he's been there for a while. He's been there like since the '80s. I he's think. he's been there for a minute. He's yeah. you know he's part of the he's part of the the you know the the, the community. So in the Boston. So 80s. what Mr. Blue said in this article, he said he, he pretty much um, dictated he is not voting for Mariano Rivera because he feels that saves are a cheap statistic, and in doing so, somehow compared Rivera to Adam Vinatieri. Yeah. yeah to, to which I, to that to which like I remember there's an article on Yahoo that said that's like saying to Bradley Cooper, "Hey, you were great in The Star Is Born, but my steak was overcooked at, at Spago the other night. Therefore, I'm not giving you the a vote for best actor." Right. The, and Baloo and the ultimate troll job has said, and "Now, despite how I feel, I don't want to deny Rivera the chance of being the first guy to get 100%, so I'm not going to vote period." Well, that's magnanimous of you, Bill. That's that's real magnanimous of you. Yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is the he, he makes he you know he makes the comparison to Adam Vinatieri kicking the game-winning field goal versus missing a 31-yarder in the first period and a 36-yarder you know in the second. Right. And in doing so, completely misses the idea of leverage. Mm-hmm. That certain situations are more serious than other situations. Well, yeah, because, like, missing the 31-yard in the first quarter, it's the first quarter, we don't know what the score was at that point, so maybe he dogged it a little bit. You've got all game. Yeah. You've got all game. Yeah. You know, but the better comparison, I thought, was actually to Kimbrell, you know, who ends the uh, who ends the postseason with an ERA close to six, Yep. permits 19 base runners, and yet ends up converting every save. You know that's yeah. a that that's a better comparison, and there is some weakness to the save stat because the save stat's a save as long as the, as long as your team wins the game, and it right. doesn't really take take too much into account of what's happened in that inning. But that said, even that comparison to Kimbrel, I feel towards Mariano Rivera is a little empty. Yeah, um, and also I mean, you you also mentioned Aroldis Chapman's record against the Red Sox, where yeah he's zero two with an ERA north of seven, right? But he's still got seven saves against the Red Sox, right? Right. So does that mean? But does that mean that a save is worthless? I don't think so. I don't think a save is worthless. I mean, like I mean, I think that saves are kind of are a very low hanging statistic. I think that they're kind of a pointless statistic. But like we said before we started recording, I just accept they're part of the game right now. Right. It's an uncomplex statistic. Yes. It's it's a little bit like ERA, which doesn't really take into account the fact that, or I'm sorry, not ERA. Well, ERA, but also the better the better corollary I think is wins. Yeah. The win doesn't really take into account. The run support that you might have had. I mean, yeah, because Felix Hernandez, uh, several years back, he had I think only twelve wins on the year, but he led the, he led the majors with an ERA I think in the low twos. I mean, look at Jacob Degrom. Yeah, 
I mean, look look at Kevin Brown in the '90s. Exactly. Look on the conver- and conversely, you know, look at a guy like Roger Pavlik, you know, who yeah. puts together a decent can- who put together a decent campaign for a couple years, but got run support in the you know in the low sevens. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. This was during. The, it's a um, lot easier. To, it's a lot. Well, yeah. Because <laughs> Roger Pavlik was playing when the Texas Rangers, you know, had Juan Gonzalez. Right. They had, had that big office. They had Ron Rodriguez. Ivan Rodriguez. Canseco for a couple of years. I mean, look. It, you know, the win is like the save is a bit of an uncomplex statistic. However, we still do honor people with win in terms of wins who can, you know, amass a certain amount of them. Yeah. You know, it, it, Roger Clemens has 300 wins. All right. those wins aren't meaningless. Yeah. I mean, like, because he was playing, he was playing on good teams and he was, but he was also so good of a pitcher that he could, his team could only score, let's say, two, three runs a game, but he'd limit, he'd limit the opposition to one. Right. And, and, and one of the things, you know, and, and Bill Ballow does have other opinions about other awards that, yeah, he, that I, he's been a voter on. Well, because you actually constructed because the reason of this, the whole point of this segment of the show, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Bill, Bill Ballou has a, uh, a bit of a rep. Yeah, for I'm, doing this. He, he's Mr. Hot Take. He has he has he has strident opinions about certain awards and he takes positions, you know, and that's as all good sports writers do. He takes, he takes positions and he sticks to them. So Bill Ballou on, on the MVP, on the MVP award, um, I believe it was in, I believe it was in uh, 2013. Yeah. This is, this is from a uh, halo hangout, which is the angels fan site from a uh, fan site. <laughs> on, on the, on the, uh, you know, on the, uh, on him placing Mike Trout seventh on his MVP ballot. Oh, geez. Bill Ballou says, I am a strict constructionist, revaluable. If the award were player of the year, Trout would get my vote. I'm of the school that in order to have value, you have to help your team be good, at least to the point of contending, and the Angels didn't truly contend. And this is a conversation that we've had several times. There has to be a most valuable player award versus the best pl- overall player or player of the year. But but there isn't? Yes. And I so I don't think that it's fair to the player to take contention into account. I think you have to think about it in terms of where would the team have been without him? Well, that's why I, because Christian Yelich won National League MVP this year, and he just, he had a great year, career season. He did. But how much of that had to do with just a second half hot streak? Right. Whereas Javi Baez was, was playing at the highest of levels from start to finish, and if you take him off of that Cubs team, they're not even sniffing the playoffs. Right. If you took J.D. Martinez out of the 2018 Red Sox, I don't think they have 108 wins. Whereas, same with Yelich and the Brewers. Right. If you th- like, They came pretty close last season, 2017, right. Right. to get in the wildcard spot without him. Yeah. So who's to say that they wouldn't have picked up right where they left off? Right. I mean, like, we... We sadly do not have Rick Sanchez's portal gun to see alternate universes and realities. No, we don't, unfortunately. We're, in, we're not anywhere near the Citadel of Rick's. Although, as a tangent, I would like to see a Citadel of Manny Machado's. <laughs> I want to see. I want to see. I want to see on the Yankees team nine Manny Machado's playing for an audience of solely consisting of Manny Machado's calling by umps that are Manny Machado's. I want Manny Machado on the Yankees so badly. So you're saying I can taste it. So you're saying Manny Machado's a Rick? I'm saying Manny Machado is a Rick. So he's a Rick because he gives zero. Well, he doesn't. He he gives zero craps. Yeah. <laughs> so who's his Morty? Sonny Gray. Yeah. Sonny Gray. Sonny Gray is a Morty. He is the Mortiest of baseball Mortys. He is. He is a. <laughs> he is a Morty 
on the that that currently plays for the Yankees. Folks, if you haven't watched Rick and Morty, go ahead and do it right now. So, so going back to um, Mr. Ballow Blue, however you, however you pronounce his name. All right, so you know he he has he takes he takes stride in positions on awards and awards voting, and he takes it seriously as all you know as all good sports writers should. Uh, and another another notable. Uh, Another notable position he took was on Rookie of the Year in 2003. All right, so I'm going to let you take the wheel on this one because I actually have something have something to add that's very interesting about this. So in 2003, Hideki Matsui was up for Rookie of the Year. Godzilla, 2009 World Series MVP. Godzilla. How many years, Josh, had he had he spent in the in the in the in the Japanese leagues? Here, I'll find that out right now. Pulling it up. And he starred over there. Yeah, I mean, he was. I think he had. I think close to 300 home runs or something by the time he came over here. All right, um, he had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, ten years with the Yamiuri Giants. He'd spent a decade with the Yamiuri Giants, right? That's correct. He's got three MVP awards over there. I mean, I, I don't know about his uh, the trophy numbers, but the, his last year with Tokyo, with the Yamiuri Tokyo Giants in 2002, hit 334 with 50 homers and 107 RBIs. I mean, look, if that guy, if, if Matsui had done the same for, you know, um, the Seattle Mariners before he came to the Yankees. Of course, you wouldn't vote him Rookie of the Year because he wouldn't be a rookie, right? Right. And so the thought was, and Ballou's thought, Ballou's thought was, is that this guy's not a rookie according to the spirit of the award. He is according to the letter of the award because yeah. this is his first full season in the major leagues. Yeah. But according to the spirit of the award, he's not a rookie, you know. And said, and 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 he says. Um, and he and he made it, and you know, and he and he made it known, like he made, you know, he made his thoughts known, like he made the Mariano Rivera decision known, like he made the, but, you know, but, like he like he made the Trout decision known. He says, look, this is this is what I believe, and he took that. Was he same, right? At the same time, though, this is where things get interesting because Baloo kind of uh, exposed himself. In what uh, way? Because he said, "Oh, voting for Matsui violates the spirit of the award." These Hall of Fame uh, ballots, they're publicized. Uh, or not Hall of Fame. They, these awards ballots are publicized, and he voted for these two guys, Ichiro Suzuki and Kaz Sasaki, who both won Rookie of the Year with the Seattle Mariners, despite lengthy careers over in Japan. So all of a sudden, here comes Matsui, who's playing for the hated New York Yankees. Now, if you look at the guy who beat out Matsui for Rookie of the Year, Angel Baroa, they had like the only real area where Baroa he had one more home run and more stolen bases. Everything else was pr- was pretty even. Right. With Baloo saying, oh, voting for Matsui violates the spirit of the award? No, it doesn't. You just don't want to vote for a Yankee. Just call it like it is. You know, and I and I and and I thought that, that that might be the case. Yeah. You know, and I actually thought it was payback for George King's vote against Pedro for the MVP in nineteen ninety nine. I actually did for a while. Because George King in nineteen ninety nine writes an article, he says, Look, I'm not voting for Pedro for MVP for essentially for the reasons that with which you know with which other writers have agreed with him is that you know pitchers don't play enough right you know they're not position players yeah you know so a pitcher who pitches you know once every five days can't be more valuable than than a position player who plays every day and that's and that's a thinking that and i like i said i thought it might be payback for that but baloo agrees with it yeah baloo feels that you know and felt at the time um that Pedro shouldn't have gotten the award because Pedro didn't pitch, you know, 800 innings 
or a thousand innings. You, you, Pedro only pitches two hundred innings. He only pitches according to him, you but know, fifty percent of the time. But at the same time, and, and we've seen it happen since then, because because I, I remember, I think it was two thousand one, two thousand two. Yeah, it was two. It was two thousand one. Roger Clemens, I think, was one. I think it was like twenty and three on the year, in his late thirties. Right. Yeah. He, uh, yeah, he was twenty and three with a three point five one ERA. Uh, won the Cy Young for the Yankees. Finished eighth in MVP voting, and he was the he was the first pitcher on the ballot. And re- yeah, in the top ten top ten vote getters, he's the only pitcher. So I do get the argument that pitchers don't play every day. They are, they have the Cy Young, which is pretty much MVP for pitchers. But what if a pitcher has such a great year as a whole? Is just so lights out good. I mean, we saw it with Degrom this year, right? What, like, does that disqualify them from MVP? Well, here's the here's where the argument in terms of most valuable player gets a little confused with his thoughts on versus his thoughts on Trout versus his thoughts on Pedro. Okay. So Bill Bill, uh, Bill Blue writes in the Worcester Telegram Gazette, November 1999. Yep. A great pitcher, yes. A most valuable player, no. The two writers who did not put Martinez on their ballots, George King of New York and Lavelle, Lavelle Neal of Minneapolis, were the only ones to get it right. There is nothing innately wrong with a pitcher being MVP. Find me a pitcher who will throw 800 to 1,000 innings a year, and I'll vote for him. Listen, Haas Radborn did it in the 1880s. But yet, by his own criteria, what confuses me about that decision is that by his own criteria, the Red Sox made the playoffs that year. In 99, yes, they did. With... Without Pedro, they don't make the playoffs. They really don't. Pedro's the really without Pedro, they don't make the ALCS because because he didn't didn't he throw like five innings out of the bullpen. Pedro was like to the to the nineteen ninety nine to the Red Sox fans circa you know nineteen ninety nine two thousand. Pedro was basically Warren Spahn and Johnny Sane rolled into one. Yeah, you hoped you wished you could get him out there three times a week. Now, if if you if you'll please indulge me because um, this was something you also also sent over. Uh, like the double play combination of Tinker's Evers and Chance, Warren Spahn and Johnny Sane were linked together in verse. These were got now for the younger fans. Warren Spahn and Johnny Sane were two star pitchers for the for the Boston then Milwaukee Braves. Uh, the poet responsible for this pairing was Gerald V. Hearn, an editor of the Boston Post. In September of the 1948 season, he penned an ode to the Boston Braves aces. First, we'll use Spahn, then we'll use Sane, then an off day followed by rain. Back will come Spawn, followed by Sane, and followed, we hope, by two days of rain. And and, and Pedro, around that time, was so important to that team Yeah, that he's one of the only reasons that they were as good as they were. They made the playoffs in 98. They made the playoffs in 99. They made the ALCS in 99 against the Yankees. Yeah. They ended up losing. Pedro pitched in their only win in that ALCS, a 12-1 victory yep, at Fenway I Park. Remember. And, and even despite that win, though, the, the Yankees were really the only team that kind of had him figured out. Right. Because right around this time is when the Yankees became known for taking lots of pitches, drawing a lot of walks. Grinding out those at-bats. Yeah, because, because the Red Sox, as good as they were with Pedro in 1999, their bullpen for a time was touch and go. Right. So what the Yankees would do, they would wear Pedro down until around the 6th or the 7th inning. Get to their keep, bullpen. Keep the score close, and then just pour everything on once the relievers came out. I mean, the... The it, yeah, I mean, but it can't be gainsaid though that that gainsaid. I can't believe I can't believe I used that word, but um, because that's a that's an old timey word. But I guess we're talking old timey baseball in some sense. 
But Gordon Eden... Now, a word from Anderson. Right. You know, the, the Boston baseballers are going to trounce the New York Highlanders. Uh, you know, here's here's an ad for... Here's an ad for Marty Brickle Soap. Um, but the... <laughs> but Gordon Eadie's for the Boston Globe writes... And it, and it, it was the next year regarding Pedro regarding Pedro's MVP candidacy. This is from a September 2000 Boston Globe? Right. Okay, yeah, I got it in front of me right now. Go right. ahead. Name one pitcher who hasn't struggled this season. Clemens, Wells, Glavin, Maddox, Randy Johnson, they've all had their downtimes. Martinez's downtime usually lasts about a batter or two. Good God, said Minnesota general manager Terry Ryan. Do you realize where that team would be without Pedro? Yeah, and and I... Um, I really need to look at this and then just go back and look at the 99-2000 Red Sox because I want to see just where, where everyone stands from a war perspective. Right. Because um, I remember who was on the team you had. 99, you had Nomar, obviously. Troy O'Leary was still there. He was knocking around. Veritek was starting to come into his own. I believe Darren Lewis yep. was, still kick, was still kicking around. Um, John Valentin. Dar- oh. Darren Bragg might have been. Darren Bragg may have been there. Here we here we got we got baseball reference in front of us. Let's find out. So that night that ninety nine Boston team, which finished second behind the Yankees for the wild card, on top of Pedro because they won they won ninety four games, and they had they had the aging Mike Stanley, Jose Offerman was there and not really doing his best. Trot Nixon was starting to come into his own as a corner outfielder. Uh, you had Brian Dahlback who had twenty one home runs as a DH, and then behind Pedro, your your best pitcher after him. Okay, you have Brett Saberhagen who makes twenty two starts and po- and posts in the ERA in the high twos. And was a you know was a was a excuse me I believe a late signing the late year signing the year before. Yeah, and get this eleven walks in one hundred nineteen innings for Brett Saberhagen. Wow, talk about control. That's pretty crazy. And then you, and then your two leaders in saves you had Derek Lowe and Tim Wakefield with fifteen. Oh, that was Derek Lowe's closer years. Yeah, and starter it, didn't work out. Closer worked out for a bit. Yeah, until it didn't, and then he went back to being a starter. And, and then, fine. and then a five hundred, about a five hundred starter. But just some of, just some of these names I'm seeing on the pitching staff besides Pedro, Pat Rapp, Mark Portugal, <laughs> Real Cormier, Mark Guthrie. Yeah, like they asked the question, do you realize where that team would be without Pedro? They wouldn't be in the wild card. So it's surprising to me that an apparent, an apparent bit of a homer. And and Bill Ballow, it's surprising. Yeah. It's surprising to me that he took this position on Pedro. Um, yet took the you know yet took the position he's taken uh, you know on Mariano Rivera. Um, it's 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 really it's really surprising being you know being a being a writer you know being a Boston writer it being being part of the being part of the Boston media for almost thirty years and knowing and, and knowing how important Pedro was to that team and how valuable Pedro was to that team against his argument that you know Trout shouldn't get it because his team didn't contend but for Pedro this team doesn't contend so that that was confu- that was a little confusing to yeah, me yeah but also he's very in terms of his homerism he's also very guilty of a whataboutism cuz this is from an article that he wrote in 2011 pick your evils when judging Ramirez for the hall so this is obviously when the twice suspended Manny Ramirez is coming up for Cooperstown right and uh Baloo wrote how drug use affects his candidacy for the Hall of Fame is a question that I that will be answered by each Hall voter. To date, I have voted for Mark McGuire, even though I believe he used performance-enhancing drugs. The reasons are complicated, and this is an extremely complex issue. It's not a black-and-white, once-a-cheater-always-a-cheater situation, as some people would like to depict it. Is Gaylord Perry's kind of cheating okay? He was a spitballer. Right. What about Sammy Sosa using a corked bat, or players in the 60s, 70s, and 80s using amphetamines to provide them with more energy? 
What if a player used steroids for one year, then swore off them? Does that nullify everything he ever did? And if pitchers such as Roger Clemens were using them as well as hitters like Ramirez, does that mean that all men were created equal? I don't know, and until I do, and until the commissioner of baseball and team owners accept their responsibility as part of the great injection, I'll give players the benefit of the doubt. And this is interesting because I actually agree with him 100%. I do too. Yeah. It's a nuanced point of view, and like his point of view on Mariano Rivera. Right, because I, I feel that what a lot of people don't realize, especially like the old-time fans, because they're, they're saying, oh, what about amphetamines? What about spitballing? The game evolves. Right. Baseball is a very scientific game and evolves as such. Right. Manny Ramirez... Are you, gonna, are, you gonna, are you going to somehow tell me that Ty Cobb didn't have the, you know, the amount of hits or total bases that he had because, by all accounts, he was able to take some extra bases with you know, combative techniques on the base paths? You know, if you could spike a guy at second yeah. base and take the base, does that now, now that we would look at that as dirty play or maybe even cheating, does that, would that invalidate those two, you know, those total bases or those hits? And, and, and obviously the answer is no. Yeah. Right? And, and, and I'll, and I'll tack on something here on a little, a little family story. Cause my, my stepfather, and my uncle grew up in Keyport, New Jersey, little shore town. And they knew someone who had it, who I think got an invite to spring training or something. Mm-hmm. And they said, hey, what was it like? What's the first thing you noticed? And he, and he said, the first thing you notice when you walk into the clubhouse is there's bowls everywhere. And it's all different kinds of pills. Like, this is for a hangover. This is for joint pain. This is for a backache. <laughs> this is for, this is if you're just feeling drowsy. So, and then meanwhile, you have Manny Ramirez, who's twice suspended, who the second time around opted to retire from baseball as opposed to be suspended for an entire season. Um, it's a little different because it's not like Gaylor Perry who's throwing a spitball here and there. So, right, so we so we have Bill Ballow, right? Yeah. He's a Boston sports writer, been there for 30 years. He has yep. definite feelings and definite kind of personal rules about certain types of voting for MVP, for uh, for Cy Young. And for the Hall of Fame, for which, the we'll hall, to, which we'll get to in a second. For the Hall of, for the hall of Fame. But he also has some thoughts about closers. Yeah. And he, and, and he has some thoughts about he, and he has some thoughts about the, the save stat in particular. You know, so it's obvious that he's not a big believer in the stat called the save, as we've kind of discussed, right? That's absolutely correct. You know, so he, I think he views it as, a, as, an, as, too in, as too inexact and not really representative of anything. You know, so from the, uh, from, from the Telegram Gazette in June, uh, June 2009. Uh, yeah, here it is. When, when, talking about, when talking about the difference between John Papelbon Papple bum, Papple, well, Papple something. John, pa- <laughs> John Papelbon and, and, and Bob Stanley. Stanley was routinely in games in the sixth and seventh innings, and when he came in, was expected to finish. He had ten or twelve chances to blow a save almost every time. Papelbon has three, and very occasionally four. Let's not inflate the value of closers from June 2013. Billy Bean believed that closers were vastly overrated and overpriced because the save is essentially a bogus statistic made to sound important by its title. Bean's viewpoint was, quoting from the book, you could take a slightly above average pitcher and drop him into the closers role, let him accumulate some gaudy number of saves, and then sell him off. You could, in essence, buy a stock, pump it up with false publicity, and sell it off for much more than what you paid for. In fact... And it hasn't worked. Uh, you know, the good news is that it's not hard to find slightly above average pitchers. In fact, that's what bullpens are. Yikes. Warehouses for slightly above average pitchers. Okay. Well, I, I, I can sort of see where he's going with that because every Yankees fan. His feelings. Look, he has, a, he has a definite viewpoint and that's been, and it's one, at least on the save and closers, that you can kind of chart through the year. You know, I don't think, so I don't think the, to, 
you know, I don't think right now we can say that that the Mariano Rivera viewpoint is is strictly homerism. Well, well, yeah, but also you have yeah, but also um, every Yankees fan, at least who who grew up watching the game in the '90s, will remember Mariano Rivera came up as a starter. Right, he was a converted infielder, a starter, and he had a couple good games. I remember one. I remember one instance where he threw a complete game against the White Sox. And then he had a season and a half as kind of a bullpen guy. Yeah, well, uh, but well, not but not a closer. When, he wasn't when, the closer until 1997. He right. debuted in '95 and right. was and was the setup man in '96. Right, and and he was a two three inning guy then. Yeah, because uh, people always noticed when he was a starter, he would always get tired after a few innings. Because if you look at his first year in the majors as a starter, he I think he had a 5.56 ERA, something like that. Yeah, um, but that just goes to show. Okay, you see this guy who's a starter and he's kind of wearing down after two three innings. Okay, well, what about Andrew Miller? Same thing. Yeah. And are we saying that Andrew Miller isn't like is less of a pitcher because of that? Absolutely not. No. But it's like I said earlier, saves are just a part of the game. Do I like them? I could take or leave them. I think they're kind of I think they're kind of an overhyped stat. I used to think they were the truth. Now it's like, okay, anybody or their mother could be a closer. Yeah, but to ignore the save though is to ignore the concept of leverage. Yes. And that some innings are higher leverage than others. Absolutely. And that there's a difference between the second inning a lot of times and the ninth inning. There's not always yeah. a difference. The ninth right. inning can be as easy as the second. Frequently it's not. And that pitchers who specialize in high leverage situations are valuable in and of themselves. Right. So when Martinez would pitch in 1999, frequently he just you know mow you know mow the opposite team down, mow the opposing batters down, you know the first time through the lineup, you know so those one two you know those first two or three or four or even some some games five innings they're not high leverage situations. Closers come in and the games because of the nature of the save are inherently high leverage because oftentimes the tying the tying run is either at the plate or in the batter's box. Or at the, I'm sorry, at the plate or in the on deck circle, you know. So I don't think we can. I, I I think it's I think it's difficult to. Sure, it's it's not it's not an exact stat, but it's not a worthless stat. I, I respect that. Yeah. And accumulating lots and lots and lots of them mm-hmm. is a pretty special thing. Yeah. Um, and that said, let's move. Let's uh, get back to another favorite topic of Balu, the Hall of Fame. He he has so he has so he, here's a guy who has definite opinions on awards voting. Cy Young. He has definite opinions on saves. Definite opinions on closers. He also has definite opinions on Hall of on the Hall of Fame and what it means to be a Hall of Famer. Yeah, this is a quote um, of his from the Telegram and Gazette from uh, December 2016. Hall of Fame ballot has a catalog of achievements recognized as legitimate by Major League Baseball. When the game, when the people who run the sport begin declaring forfeits and wipe out home runs, stolen bases, complete games, and saves in the name of PED justice, and by the way, refund the money of people who paid to watch these accomplishments, I may take PED use into consideration. Trevor Hoffman, I think closers are terribly overrated and judging from how he used his bullpen during the playoffs, so does Terry Francona. Edgar Martinez, a fine player who didn't sell any tickets all by himself. Same for Tim Raines, Gary Sheffield, and Yvonne Rodriguez. Sammy Sosa had the misfortune of always being somebody's statistical vice president, usually Mark McGuire's, in both impact and the affection of fans. I'm curious about, though, what is the Hall of Fame criteria, then? Do you have to, do you have to be a box office draw? It, it's do you really have hard. to be? Do you have to be? Do you or do you merely have to be an excellent player? I'm at the point now where I feel there is no criteria for the Hall of Fame because with between the modern era committee right now and the veterans committee, anybody can get in. Right, but what's his criteria from that? What do you? What can you draw about his criteria 
for the Hall of Fame? Do you have to be a box office draw? I can't draw criteria from it. He's so vague. He's he's like all over the place. Or you this. just kind of know it, or you don't. I think is his point. Yeah. Like, he, I mean, that's. I mean, I'm I'm looking at at the at this year's Hall of Fame ballot right now, and among the first timers, Mariano Rivera, absolutely, he's in the Hall of Fame. Roy Halladay, the numbers aren't the best, but taking into consideration when he played and just where he, because he was also he spent half his career in the AL East trying to keep up with the Yankees, then he was with the Phillies, and uh, injuries kind of kind of uh, hurt him there. Todd Helton, uh, I think he should be in just because he was such a great hitter for so long. Right. And then you see guys like Mike Mussina absolutely should be in it. Edgar Martinez. Like, I don't think Kurt Schilling should be in the Hall of Fame. Well, I mean, neither does Bill Bellow. What, what's his take on Schilling? I, I don't think uh, I saw that. That it's, that it's just – he just hasn't done – he just hasn't done enough. Just hasn't – doesn't have the resume for yeah. it. And, um, but but, but, but uh, contrastingly, Omar Vizquel should be in the Hall of Fame. Because he, he, how many gold gloves does he have? He was the best defensive shortstop of his time. Right. You knew that if you hit a ball to shortstop, you were out for generation. If Vizquel was playing, yeah. But the, I mean, but that's you know that's that's part of it is that is that you know there's statistically there are certain criteria that get you into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. You know, there's 500 home runs with 3,000 hits. Those are usually tickets in. 500 home runs, 3,000 hits, 3,000 strikeouts. Right. 300 wins will get you in. Yeah, I don't well, think- well, nobody's getting 300 wins anymore. I mean, I don't, I don't think we'll, yeah, I don't think we'll see a, uh, you know. Yeah, but but then, like, he, um, with the, the Modern Era Committee, he says that this is also from uh, 2000. Uh, the Veterans Committee is diluting the Hall of Fame. He's saying uh, Sparky Anderson uh, getting elected to the Hall of Fame was out of touch, and this is where I disagree with him. Right. Because Sparky Anderson, okay, he, um, younger fans will remember him most as the, as the coach of the Detroit Tigers mm-hmm. where, okay, he won the 1984 world series, but is known more for bad teams in Detroit than he was good teams. But this is also the same man who was the architect of the great red machine. And so, uh, because the big red machine, they, I guess you could say they started around, let's say 1970 petered out and let's say 77, 78, and, but they made like one, two, four world series and won two of them. Right. So the guy like, he constantly had a team in contention. I just don't know. I think, and, and it was I, known for just being aggressive, like in, in all means possible as a manager. No, and I think you're, and I think you're, I, I think Sparky Sparky Anderson's a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Now, now, granted, he does say the same thing about um, about Tony Perez and Don Sutton being mistakes, which which I which I get because they're both compilers. These are guys who are only in the Hall of Fame because they played for twenty something years and padded their stats. But isn't that worthy of the Hall in and of itself? I mean, not 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 in terms of padding your stats, but achieving statistical milestones, isn't that worthy of recognition? Well, my criteria for for compilers is this: because for me to be a Hall of Famer, you need to have been playing at a high level from start to finish. Now, I'll, I'll allow for tapering off at the end because Harold H- Bain, Harold Baines is a compiler by uh, by your definition. I, I agree. I, yeah, I absolutely think that. So, should he be in the Hall or not? Uh, Harold Baines is it's it's strange because here I'm I'm pulling up his numbers as we speak because by the time I became aware of who Harold Baines was he was already in the second half of his career right he had been relegated to playing DH a bunch right and I think that Harold Baines is someone where you could make the argument for putting him in the Hall of Fame because he's got he's got 384 home runs 289 lifetime batting average he doesn't have a lot of All Star berths to his name but I think that. What hurt him? He's got like twenty eight hundred hits, something like that. Uh, yes, close 20, to the 20, milestone. Twenty eight hundred sixty six. Right. 
Close um, to the milestone, yeah, not so quite there. He played 22 years with um, one, two, three, four, with uh, five different teams. He was at the White Sox a few times, the Texas Rangers, Oakland, Baltimore, was in Cleveland for a hot minute. I think that with Harold Baines, he is a compiler. But I think also had he stayed on one team consistently in the second half of his career, as opposed to bouncing around so much, the numbers would be a little more well-rounded. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Because change, change of scenery, like, Giancarlo Stanton said this on, on R2C2, that's a Ryan Rucco and CeCe Sabathia's podcast, which I highly recommend to everybody because it's great. Um, Stan made the point, or and this was also said on several Yankees broadcasts, moving to New York and any new city as a player you got to figure out, where am I living? Sure. Where do, where am I going to do my errands? Where do I go out to eat? Yeah, where do I go to eat? What's the best way to get to the stadium? There's all kinds of mundane kind yes. of considerations. Yes, like, because people don't realize that as much as we love these guys as baseball players, they do have day-to-day lives to live. They, sure. they got to drop off their dry cleaning, too. they got to put their kids through school. Yeah. And, um, and I feel that, but going back to my criteria, um, Based on my criteria, I would not put um, Harold Baines in the Hall of Fame because he played at a high level consistently, but towards the end, it just kind of tapered off a little too much. Yeah. He started looking more and more like a role player. Right. Um, whereas, and I feel that you see this with Tony Perez and Don Sutton as well. You see them going on and on through, for all these years, but they never really looked dominant in the latter half of their career. Right. Whereas Derek Jeter, up until he hurt his ankle, he was still playing at a high level. Yeah. Um, Mariano Rivera, like, he didn't have one and bad Jer- year. And, and Derek Jeter. No, he didn't. And Derek Jeter, ha- you know, hits this statistical milestone of 3,000 hits. Yeah. And that, that that to me is kind of, you know, in, in, in part a gateway. But that's a, but that's a, that's a factual thing. You know what I mean? It's not a, it's not a, a, a it's not a look and feel um, a, or a touch and feel criteria for the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and I think that the main reason Harold Baines got in is because, as far as baseball players goes, he is so universally well liked. Yeah, and well respected. Yeah, and he he's a, he was a coach at the White Sox for years. He still might be. He got he had a great career. Yeah, I mean, like for being just a regular left-handed outfielder, he had a really good career. Right. Uh, I don't think it's a Hall of Fame career, but I think that it's. But I think that it's a combination of being a nice guy because, like, hey, sometimes sometimes being nice works. But and similarly, this is why I am not going to put Fred McGriff in the in the Hall of Fame because if you look at his production once he left the Atlanta Braves, he hit 30 home runs three times with the with the Tampa Bay Devil Rays and the Chicago Cubs. Right. Um, but he just kind of yo-yoed a little too much. Like um, that, there's just not enough there. Let me put it to you this way: um, Does he make? Do you think he makes it in on a late vote? Like, uh, you I know, don't after, think after some years, he works up to it, kind of I like Edgar Martinez he, is going to do. I don't think he'll. I don't think he will. I mean, I'd be happy if he did, but I think at this point, he's looking more at a modern era committee thing or a veterans right, committee. Right. And here's why: From so he debuts with the Blue Jays with in three games in 1986, and is with and is with the Braves through 1997 with a spot on the Padres in between. From his first game with the Blue Jays to his, through his last with the Braves, 285 uh, lifetime hitter, 339 home runs, and 1,007 RBIs. And across the stretch, he also plays in one, two, three, four All-Star games. Um, and it finishes in the top ten of MVP voting one, two, three, four, five, six times. So there's something to be said for that, especially playing in the steroid era. Um, and then all of a sudden, from 1998 on, this is what his age 34 season up through his retirement at age 40, 283 lifetime batting average, but the power numbers drop. Yeah. Now age age has a lot to do with that. I grant it, but I feel that 
a lot of these guys are going to get the shaft because of the steroid era. Sure. And McGriff was a big, tall, skinny guy and was clearly not on steroids. But we're talking about statistical milestones and 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 and, re- and, and stats compiled He's over careers. Four hundred ninety-three career home runs, like uh, twenty-four hundred ninety uh, hits, almost there. Do you call so so you you would you would so he fits the kind of compiler definition. He's for a you. compiler, but he's a but it's you know it's like, a very loose definition of compiler. Like those quarterbacks case. that get to thirty thousand yards by you know being yeah. uh, being sometimes a backup, sometimes a you know sometimes a starter, or just by know. or just by refusing to retire, like your boy Tom Brady. But, well, you know Tom Brady does what he does, and he does it very well. And as far as I'm concerned, when you win five titles, you. You get to pick your exit. Yeah, okay. Keep, keep eating the avocado toast with quinoa, buddy. Okay, <laughs> jeez. But so getting back to getting back to Bill Ballou's criteria for Bill Ballou's sorry criteria for the you know first Hall of Fame voting, um, he he had a July two thousand two article kind of tells you where he's at. And he says, and he writes, I saw my first Red Sox game in 1959, my father taking me in for the express purpose of seeing Williams play before he retired. That has stayed with me ever since. And when a new name appears on the Hall of Fame ballot, I look at it and ask, would a father somewhere take his son or daughter to a game just so they could say they once saw this man play? And if the answer is no, he's not a Hall of Famer. I get it. Yeah. I get. It. I, I respect that. Just be, just because <laughs> I, I respect that for for one reason because once in a generation somebody like Ted Williams comes along, or a Mariano Rivera. There you go. I get it. So I get I get his criteria, which is that it's purely subjective mm-hmm. and not really tethered to any statistical, objective kind of criteria. I get it. Mariano Rivera is a player. Yeah, that you that you this was a guy that you would tell your kids about that I saw this man pitch an inning. I remember I, I forget what game because like like many baseball fans like especially when I was a teenager I had baseball video games up the wazoo right there I can't remember which one this was maybe it was High Heat or maybe it was um it was something else but I think I think it was Tom Brenneman doing the broadcast and every time I brought in Rivera to pitch for the Yankees he would go and here he is Mister Automatic Mariano Rivera. Yeah, we used to call him Mr. Death in my house. Mr. Death. Because nice. your hopes of winning the game died when he entered it. You're pounding your fist on the table. No, I'm sorry. That. You... I just, I just, I, I feel, I feel. Rage? It's, 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 it's I, I've been traumatized in some sense by Mariano Rivera's excellence over the years. <laughs> He's that good. But look, if that's your criteria, though, you know, if that's, if that's Baloo's criteria for, 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 for electing someone to the Hall of Fame, how or why Mariano doesn't fit that goal or, or or that mold isn't really clear to me. Right, because I, I feel that if the shoe was on the other foot, let's say let's say for argument's sake, Mariano Rivera was was with the Red Sox for all right. his career. Right. Everything that happened to the Yankees in the 1990s happened to the Red Sox instead. Right. I don't think he'd be singing this tune. No, I think I mean in in some sense, I think if you look through his takes and look. If you look through any writer's takes, and, 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 and I'll be—I'll be the first and, to admit I am so guilty of hot takes as a writer. If, if you look through any—if you look through anybody's takes, especially over a—I mean, he's been there. He's been there for a long, long time. Yeah, thirty years. If you look through anybody's takes, you're gonna find some takes that didn't really, you know, that did—that didn't age well. But this, yeah. I think, I think for—I think his position on this is number one. I think it's wrong-headed, and number two, I don't think it's defensible. 
And the le- and the last reason I don't think it's defensible is because how he fe- of how he feels about the save. He feels like it's uh, he feels like it's it's an emperor with no clothes kind of situation. That's you know that's what's that's what he wrote. That's what he's written about it. Yeah. And he says that you know, given two hundred wins or six hundred saves, you know what's more impressive feat for you? And he and he's answered in the past two hundred wins. I'll put it this way: there's about hundred fifteen guys through the history of baseball have accrued two hundred wins. Yeah. Very impressive. And they've had they've all had storied careers, and you and they're and they're almost all of them really well known names and, and excellent pitchers in their day who've had splendid seasons. There are two men who've accrued 600 saves in their careers: Rivera and Trevor Hoffman. That's it, two guys. And one of those is in the Hall of Fame. So if it were so easy to get saves, if the save was such a meaningless stat, then why do we elect people to the Hall with 300 wins? Or 200 wins and because it must be it must be if there's if there's only two people with 600 saves and that's a meaningless stat then if there's 115 people with 200 wins that must be meaningless as well and also we're not even considering this wins in baseball i mean david Cohn in his color commentary for yes goes on and on wins wins don't mean everything wins aren't everything how much of the all-time wins leaders so just i'm going to rattle off a few Cy Young, Walter Johnson, Greg Maddox. Right. How ma- Steve Carlton. Wait, fun fact. Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin are the only two 300-game winners to ever pitch in the same rotation. Yeah. That is crazy. That, that's mind-blowing. It's crazy that Atlanta didn't win more. Yeah, because I don't think that Carlton and the Negroes were, were ever teammates at I one point. I don't think they were either. And I don't think – and he and Ryan were never teammates either. But anyway, I, I digress. So – you look at the at the statistic of wins for a pitcher, right? And that's not all. That's not all on the pitcher because, like, who was the lineup behind them? What was their average run support? Right. Saves. Who's their defense? Yeah. I mean, we, yeah. I mean, we haven't even touched on Barry Zito winning out over Pedro Martinez for the Cy Young Award. That was crazy. Yeah, which we'll get, we'll close out with that. But saves. That's all in the, all in the closer, right? There's there's no offense to back him up, right? I mean, maybe he'll get if he's called on to get four or five outs, maybe he'll get an insurance run here and there. I mean, look, the 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 purpose of the closer is to keep the bat away from the ball. Yeah, usually you're and, looking for guys who generate a lot of swings and misses, have a high K per nine, preferably high velocity as well. They don't walk anybody. Yeah, and I, you know, and I could see. I could see, you know, some closer getting, you know, getting a pass for a, a down year for saves because maybe a Swiss cheese defense and maybe there's yeah. been an unusual amount of miscues. But I think you're right. It really is on the clo- – the save is more on the closer than the win. More so, I think, than the win is on the starting pitcher. It's, the save is on the closer with an assist from the defense. Right, right, right. Because, like, I, I can think of several instances where – Mariano Rivera, Aroldis Chapman, any closer could have gotten a save had it not been for one untimely error. Right, and but they'll and they'll come back at you with with things like, well, you know, the Kimbrels of the world, or you know, closers have bad games. They load the bases. They let up two run. They let up two runs, not three, you know. But they still manage to get that third out and get the save. But I would counter with, yeah, but they still manage to get the three outs. Yeah, there's nobody behind them in the bullpen. There's nobody warming up. It's just them. And and whether or not whether or not they came in in a high leverage situation, I would argue that most nine-inning nine situations are, by definition, high leverage. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but whether or not they came into a, a quote unquote high leverage situation or they created the, the high leverage situation themselves, they still got through it. And to accrue 600 saves over a career is, I mean, it's easily Hall of Fame worthy to me. I, if, if there's a magic number for saves, it's got to be 600, no? I mean, do 500? Uh, I think that 300 is around there because Bruce Souter, he only had, I think, about 300 something. Right. Uh, but if wins are so important, why isn't Mickey Lolich in the Hall of Fame? Right. Or Jim Cott. Yeah. I mean, because Jim Cott, I think, had like 14 gold gloves, too. Right, right, right. Yeah, because Mickey Lolich, I believe, he's got, at one point, he had the most career wins by a left-handed pitcher. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of another stat. But Mickey Lolich, he's a World Series MVP. He's got 2,800 strikeouts and change. Three all-star, three all-star berths. I guess, and I guess this is one of those cases where I have to look at his numbers because he was great with the Tigers, but I guess he just kind of tailed off more towards the end, if that makes sense. What you got there? Any, got an update? I'm just checking. Uh, I'm just checking Jim Cott. I want to make sure I was. I want to make sure I was right about that. That he never landed in the Hall of Fame. He did not. He did not land. He did not. 283 wins. This guy had. Well, also you can make the compiler argument with him because he played 25 years. Stop. Stop it. I'm just saying that that's the argument against him because he debuted in 1959, didn't retire until 1983. I mean, the point is, this is a take that's not going to age. I don't think this take ages very well. It doesn't. Um, I, I think it's and I think it's wrong. I think he's <laughs> I think I think it's good that he's not going to deprive Rivera of a well-deserved the, the issue uh, unanimous I, vote. The issue I have with what Baloo did is that he stated an opinion. Right. And it turned into a giant troll job. Right, right, right. And I think that's disrespectful. The issue I have is that it's not really internally consistent with its with his own writing. You know, okay. his feelings on who what makes quote unquote a Hall of Famer. You know, the, your belief in the stat aside, if you look at his yeah. inning, if you look at his innings pitched, if you look at his ERA, which you know he says the ERA is the the, the stat you have to follow in terms of pitching. If you look at if you look at his postseason ERA, if you look at his, his K's per nine, his walks per nine, statistically, statistically, Rivera lands in the Hall of Fame to me. Yeah. And and I, I just don't think his reasons why are just consistent with, with anything that he's, he's written. He just before. doesn't want to have to he doesn't want to have to honor a Yankee I, on that level. I mean that can't be it because I'm I'm sure he voted for Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter isn't isn't eligible until next year. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sorry. I'm sure he'll vote for Derek Jeter when Jeter comes around. I will be very Jeter's curious got to, to see what he has Jeter's to say got, about that. Jeter's got three thousand hits. That's a that's the that's a statistical milestone, and I'm sure he'll vote for Jeter. You know, and I'm sure he's voted in other Yankees in the past, or at least voted for other Yankees who've been Hall of Fame eligible. It's just a, a very strange take that really came out of nowhere about a guy who, by all reports, was really well liked around the league. I don't know. I it's, it 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 doesn't it it doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, it it doesn't sit right with me either. Just because if you're going to be a baseball writer, even if you have a team beat, right, you need to be unbiased. You need to be objective enough where you can recognize greatness. Yeah, where like I'll give you a perfect example. I hate David Ortiz, or I hated him when he was playing against the Yankees. Like sports hate. Yeah, like I we could not get him out. We had to right. shift. Like if we if. Anything other than a ground ball that he hit, I was like, "Oh God, oh God, oh God!" Just to, to steal a Bill Simmonsism, by the way, it's sports hate. You know, you, yeah, you, 
you know, every time, oh, man, we can never get that guy out or, or you know, we can never hit that particular pitcher or we, or we can never, you know, we can never get to that closer. You sports hate the guy. At the same time, though, it's like you have to respect just how great a swing that was. You knew that right. in the night, like in the ninth inning right. in a close game, if David Ortiz was coming to bat, chances are your team was going home sad. Right. Or how impressive a feat it is to bring it back to Rivera is to have a point, what is it, point what ERA in the postseason? Uh, here, let's pull that up right now. Uh, baseball reference is open. Mariano Rivera, typing in the name. We need to hire a researcher. <laughs> anyway, uh, postseason ERA for Rivera, his career ERA. It's sub one. Point seven. Point seven. Point seven in 141 postseason innings, 96 appearances. That's crazy. And 42 saves. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer. He is a Hall of Famer. It's, it's not even a question. All right, now let's close it out because this is something that I feel – this is a little a little story that I feel our our listeners would love. This is from Baloo in the Telegram and Gazette, November 8, 2002. Basis of awards should be ERA. Sure. The most basic pitching stat really is ERA, and that is why Boston's Pedro Martinez should have won his fourth Cy Young Award this season. Zito, the, now this is the year that Barry Zito won for the Oakland Athletics. So this is 2002. So to put it into context, Pedro's I think his his greatest years yes are behind him at this point. Yeah, he he's definitely the age is starting to show just a tiny just bit. just a touch in 2002. It, it, it's not it's not where it was when he. Um, when he was with the Mets and his shoulder just kind of exploded. You'll, we'll see it a little bit more in 03 and we'll see it even, yeah. and we'll see it even a little more in 04. But, but he's, I mean, I think this is his last truly great year. Well, okay. Yes. Yeah, so it's 2002. He won 20 games, led the majors with a 2.26 ERA following year, led the majors again with a 2.22 ERA only won 14 games. Right. And, and in 2000, 2000- I think he spent some time in the DL in 03. Uh, he might have. He made 29 starts compared to 30 in 2002. No. All right. He spent some time on the DL in 2001. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. But anyway, um, so Zito's one loss record in 2002 was 23-5, his ERA 2.75. Martinez's one loss record was 20-4, his ERA 2.26. Right. And at the same time, Derek Lowe went 21-8 with a 2.56 ERA. So I think we should state beforehand that I agree with Baloo here. Not for the reasons that he gives, but I agree. And I think you do too, that Pedro Martinez should have gotten the Cy Young that year. After looking at the numbers, yes, he should have. Yeah. Because um, when I see a pitcher's ERA, and let's say, let's say it's in the twos. My next question is, okay, what's his FIP? Right. Now, um, Barry Zito's FIP that year, because he had a, um, what do you have? He had a, a 2.75 ERA, which is fine. Yeah. It's very good. It's not terrible. His ground ball rate was sub 40%. His FIP, 3.87. His XFIP, 4.28. Right. So, in a nutshell. What does that tell you? It tells me that Zito got lucky. It right. Me- it means that for despite having the 2.75 ERA, he was really pitching with the effectiveness of a pitcher whose ERA should have been at or around the high threes. Right. And and why was he so lucky? Okay, well, look at the infield he had behind him. Sure. At, uh, the Moneyball A's, Eric Chavez, had, um, he... Let's see. Had a, U, a DRS was zero, but his UZR eleven point three. That's really good. Yeah. His career UZR thirty five point four, DRS thirty one. At second base, Mark Ellis, his uh, his UZR that year one point four. I think he was just coming up, so he didn't really have he didn't really make an impact yet. But for second base, his career seventy two point one UZR. Right. DR, DRS at second base one hundred and thirty two. So this is an elite defender. Right. 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 The weak link you have is Miguel Tejada. Who, well, you know what they say: the bigger they come, the harder they fall. Hey, hey! 
I had to. I had to get it in. I had to get it in. Anyway, but now he's the weak. Now he's the weakling because his UZR uh, in two thousand two negative sixteen point one. He's the Miguel and Duhar of the team. Right. Um, but at the same time, if you've got a great corner infielder with a gun for an arm and a second baseman who can play like a shortstop, right? Then that's going to help you. It doesn't matter. And it almost doesn't matter. Yeah. And then um, similarly, uh, he also mentions Bob Welch, who uh, in 1990 won the AL Cy Young for the Oakland A's, 27 and six, ERA 2.95. Roger Clemens came in second, 21.6, 1.93 ERA. Now history has shown Welch was just lucky that year because it just kind of happened. But Clemens is the better overall pitcher. Right. Now, granted, they weren't measuring DRS and UZR back in the 90s. Sure. But 27 wins is impressive. Okay, well, why 27 wins? Because he had the Bash brothers behind him. That's the, that's the heyday of Maguire and Canseco.